This video is part of an audiobook series featuring robots by the MIT Press Essential Knowledge Series by John Jordan in 2016. For more audiobooks, please visit my YouTube channel, find me on Spotify, or check out my website for downloads. Chapter 8. How do humans and robots get along? To date, most robotic research and engineering efforts have been oriented from the inside of the robot out, addressing difficult problems of wayfinding, actuation, grasping, machine vision, and so on. Now that robots are beginning to enter human territory to perform their tasks, a new set of issues arises. What are the rules of the road for humans to steer clear of mobile robots, press elevator buttons for them, or warn them of impending danger? Which party does what part of a task, whether simple, like an ATM transaction, or complex, like bombing runs or surgery? Where do blame, liability, and ultimate responsibility lie, possibly in the form of a kill switch? A brief sampling of actual scenarios illustrates the potential richness of human-robotic relate partnership as well as the complex issues still to be resolved. Human-Robot Interaction Research into Human-Robot Interaction, or HRI, which receives substantially less attention than do other technical challenges of, of robots, is focused much more heavily on how robots read human input than on how humans respond to the presence of robots in the workplace, during emergency rescues, or when public safety is threatened. For example, in a 2013 literature review, Robin Murphy and Deborah Schreckengost, two of the field's most respected researchers, noted that, quote, in practice, robot metrics for human-robot system interactions are often inferred through observations of the robot or the human, introducing noise and error in analysis. The metrics do not completely capture the impact of autonomy on HRI as they typically focus on the agents, not the capabilities. As a result, the current metrics are not helpful for determining what autonomous capabilities and interactions are appropriate for what tasks, end quote. Which is to say, HRI researchers have yet to propose, much less agree upon, standard measures of how humans and computers interact. Out of 42 metrics identified in the literature review, 7 apply to humans, 6 to robots, and 29 to the interaction between them. Of the 7 human metrics, only 1, trust, might be said to measure the response of a human being approached by an autonomous robot. The others, such as productive time versus overhead time, apply to a human operating or in control of a robot. In the Springer Handbook of Robotics, an encyclopedic collection of articles by the field's leading scholars, the authors of Social Robots That Interact With Humans acknowledge that the study of robots' effects on humans is an is in an early stage. They posed a question, one central to the field of HRI research, that remains to be answered. What are the common social mechanisms of communication and understanding that can produce efficient, enjoyable, natural, and meaningful interactions between humans and robots? The Case of Search and Rescue Robots are ideally suited to the often dangerous and dirty search and rescue process. Although there are some surprising considerations in the design of search and rescue robots, the humanitarian upside of this type of robot stands in clear contrast to other types, where the moral and ethical dimensions are more complicated. Industrial robots take away some people's livelihoods. Combat robots are already raising serious issues, 
quite literally of life and death, and even care robots run the risk of dehumanizing nursing home residents. Indeed, it's hard to find a downside to robots that save human lives in dangerous circumstances. In such a straightforward mission, however, there are numerous questions in the handoff between human and robot that must be addressed. The field of search and rescue is as broad as human activity itself. Search and rescue robots are currently being tested in the air, on the ground, and both on and underwater. A landslide or tsunami requires aerial robots to assess broad geographic expanses. Buildings badly damaged or demolished by fire, earthquake, or explosion require ground robots to crawl through rubble. Even rubble itself is so heterogeneous that, as of 2006, there was no technical standard to characterize the different detritus left by a fire, earthquake, or explosion. Search and rescue robots must also be specialized by activity, like sensing and assessing a building, a damaged building's structural integrity, sniffing and identifying gases, explosive or poisonous, detecting and measuring radiation and mapping contaminated areas, locating, assessing, delivering care to, and extricating survivors, and mapping various layers and scales of terrain affected by a disaster each require different designs, operators, and protocols. There's also the question of getting the robot to the disaster area in the first place. Hauling in a 1,000-pound machine from hundreds of miles away may present a real problem when transportation to and communication with the area are at a premium. Thus far, search and rescue robots have most successfully been used in the air for mapping and other reconnaissance tasks. Airborne runs are easily scheduled, especially at altitudes below those used by manned aircraft. Aircraft with internal combustion engines can be deployed, and airspace presents fewer unexpected obstacles. In rubble, by contrast, battery life is an issue, especially when the robot encounters unexpected obstacles. The lack of wireless bandwidth underground or in concrete, stone, or steel-intensive rubble presents a major difficulty, often necessitating use of a fiber-optic tether and safety rope, both of which get readily snagged in disaster debris. Particular conditions will slow down a given robot's locomotion. Protruding sticks or rebar can detread open side tank tracks. Even shag carpet can present a serious problem. Indeed, it proved to be the undoing of one search and rescue robot after a mudslide. Ash and water from fire hoses can combine to make surfaces extremely slippery and also to obscure the robot's camera lenses. By reviewing some of the design challenges that confront search and rescue roboticists, we can gain an appreciation for the vast potential of this field. Rules and Algorithms Firefighters, police officers, and search and rescue teams all follow guidelines for how to approach a chaotic, dangerous situation. Which rooms are searched when? What safety measures are called, are called for by what hazards? And what communication actions are required? All of these are inculcated by training and, ex and experience. Teaching a robot how to behave in a scenario that will be unique, confusing, and dangerous is a significant challenge. Balancing autonomous and user-directed behavior, for instance, is critical. When UAVs were used to assess the structural integrity of mid-sized commercial buildings after Hurricane Katrina, for example, Ground-based operators flew the drones, but having an autonomous, well-standoff capability would have been desirable to reduce stress on the operators who were in line of sight with the UAVs, but still faced challenging wind conditions close to the damaged structures. 
Well-intentioned robot designs have repeatedly been rejected in disaster scenarios where responders have failed to intuitively grasp how to operate the devices. Setup and Maintenance How fast can the search and rescue robot be unpacked? How long does it take for an inexperienced operator to change batteries? Where is the latest operating manual? Internet downloads are often a great solution, but not when there's neither cellular service nor electricity, much less a printer. What languages are the instructions written in? Designing reliability into a robot that will encounter dust one week, mud another, extreme cold a month later, then sit in a hot warehouse for a year is a significant challenge. In very few projects will so many operating parameters be predictable or be unpredictable. Where am I? Disasters rearrange the landscape at multiple levels. An urgent task early in the disaster response is to integrate what is previously known with what is discovered. Has this building been searched? Is this bridge safe to walk, motorcycle, or convoy over? Where are the gas lines? Are they shut off? Developing sensors, data standards, and related rules of engagement for spatial information as both used and collected by robots is another high-priority objective not easy to achieve. Mobility. Wheels, legs, treads, wings, and propellers each have strengths and weaknesses. Knowing only that the environment will be harsh and physically challenging makes deciding on the best mode of locomotion for a robot very difficult. Invertible robots are desirable in tight spaces where backing up to turn is often impossible and where human operators' sense of the interior landscape makes accurate remote control more difficult. Legged and other biomimetic robots are capable of greater mobility in unpredictable settings but present difficult engineering challenges. Snake-like robots advance well in highly uneven rubble, but are still pretty difficult to build. One promising area of search and rescue robotics lies in the use of teams, either of robots and humans, with or without dogs, or of robots and robots. A helicopter or blimp overhead can survey wide areas so ground robots can be informed how close they are to a live electrical line, a pier, or other drop-off into water, or to territory already searched. The eyes in the sky complement the sensors in the rubble. And though no robot can approach a dog's olfactory acuity, sniffing robots can be deployed in hazardous situations where human handlers are unsure of the risk to their canine partners. Swarms of robots that set up ad hoc mesh wireless communication can offer redundancy in the event that one member of the swarm is incapacitated and can cover large areas in parallel rather than in series. Discovering how many human operators are required to manage groups of robots, however, remains an ongoing challenge. Structure. Given that much of the world's population lives near water, the, that water has destructive power in several forms, and that water is almost always involved in firefighting efforts, how important is it to waterproof a ground robot? There is usually a structural trade-off between a robot's ease of access for maintenance and its resistance to damage from water, sharp objects, or other hazards. How many rescue personnel are required to carry, launch, and retrieve the robot? Weight, battery life, and capability constitute difficult trade-offs. Current search and rescue robots cannot move anything very heavy, although military rescue robots can drag a wounded soldier to safety, provided the soldier's wounds are not severe. Neither military nor civilian rescue robots are as yet capable of safely transporting humans who need spinal stabilization, a common requirement in building rubble. 
Roles and Modes A more complex issue of physical structure relates to how the search and rescue robot interacts with its operators. With dogs and rescue personnel working alongside it, and even more important, with the person being rescued. What used to be called a user interface grows far more involved when a robot interacts with multiple people in multiple roles. Human-robot interaction is of particular importance in civilian search and rescue robots. A military rescue robot would likely have a dedicated operator and support team who would have trained with one another, approaching soldiers who know how to be rescued. In contrast, a rescue robot and its civilian support team on the scene of a disaster may not have trained with local responders and would find themselves in search of a civilian who most likely has no mental framework or training in how to be found or extricated by a robot. What information do operators need? Visual feeds from rescue robots' cameras can be useful, of course, but the operator cannot be assumed to be sufficiently safe and undistracted to focus only on the monitors. One school of thought suggests operators should have the robot's eye view of its physical context, information relating to the robot's operational condition, battery life, operating temperature, and a bird's eye view of the robot's location in the disaster area. To properly manage this much information, search and rescue robots probably need multiple operators for a variety of reasons involving the performance, endurance, and emotional state of human operators. One study suggests that a second operator improves the rescue robot's operational performance by a factor of nine. Add to this the support team, and the ratio of humans to robots becomes an important consideration. Toward a continuum model of interaction. In contrast to binary debates over whether X is or is not a robot, new efforts focus on a continuum of human-robot partnerships in the gray area between two extremes— one actual and the other theoretical. Take as an archetype of one extreme a newborn human, a purely biological creature without language or much in the way of cognition. At the other extreme, consider a purely artificial, disembodied creation, an archetype that in fact may never be realized, like HAL 9000 in 2001, A Space Odyssey, which possesses sense and logic and which can act, turn off light support systems and lock outer doors, but cannot move. The interesting ground for defining human-robot partnerships is the vast conceptual area that lies between these two extremes, combinations of sensors and sense organs, cognition and logic, and action by either bones and muscles or hydraulics and motors. Key questions arise about assistance, capability, and responsibility within these partnerships. Which partner assists the other, and in what ways? Which partner is ultimately in control? And what can a particular partnership achieve that neither partner could alone? Two brief examples illustrate the usefulness of the hybrid approach to human-robot partnerships. One, when a customer retrieves money from an ATM, the, customer, the human provides key capabilities to the robot, making the customer-cash-machine interaction a human-robot partnership. The same goes for smartphones or other GPS navigation systems. The computer responds to its human partner's request, senses where the human is in space, calculates a route, and relies on the human to follow directions to fulfill the request. 2. When humans receive biomedical augmentation like cochlear implants, robotic arms, or wheelchair speech synthesizers like Stephen Hawking, However, the human-technology partnership relies on robotics. There is never any question about the human partners' humanity and agency within the partnership.
There are many gray areas in human-robotic partnerships, whether they derive from carbon fiber running prostheses, Google Glass facial recognition, or automated stock trading algorithms. Instead of worrying about binary definitions, informed and nuanced debate can help us clarify the place and limits of both augmented humanity and humanized automation. To suggest but one question that might be raised in this debate, how soon will there be unlimited categories of athletic competition, much as there are in competitive motorsports? Exoskeletons, prostheses, and various implants might be legalized for a new competitive class of augmented human athletes. Note that, once the discussion of human-robot partnerships puts humans and robots on a continuum, the door is open to pharmaceutical or medical augmentation. Steroids, human growth hormones, and blood transfusions can, can improve human musculoskeletal performance through a variety of mechanisms. Beta blockers have long been recommended, or self-prescribed, for people with strong adverse reactions to speaking or performing in public. New medications for post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, might enable people who relive or dream about their traumatic experiences to forget those experiences. Each year, tens of millions of prescriptions are written for attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, ADHD, medications. Many of these pills find their way to non-symptomatic users, whether to enhance their moods or improve their performance, like students cramming for finals or athletes wanting an extra edge. Professional football players have been suspended in the United States for taking one such medication in particular, Adderall. The point here is that the discussion about human augmentation in many competitive scenarios lags far behind the reality of the various legal and illegal means to achieve it. Robotic augmentation is in some ways merely one category among several. Compu-mechanical augmentation. One category of human-robotic partnership entails compu-mechanical assistance to a human, possibly disabled, often not. Beginning with the lever, machines have augmented and then largely replaced human muscle in growing, harvesting crops, extracting natural resources, and fabricating the man-made environment. Beginning with the stylus, most likely, a succession of tools have aided and largely replaced human brain power. A high schooler with a $2 calculator is far better at doing simple math than a PhD without one. Computer-augmented social networks can help solve crimes, predict elections, and solve complex problems. The robot combines these two varieties of human assistance and augmentation, musculoskeletal and cognitive. Put a slightly different way, machines multiply force. Computers, singly and in networks, multiply and amplify cognition. Once computing moves into three dimensions, robotic technologies multiply presence, allowing humans to sense, observe, analyze, and act on physical reality at some remove. In 2012, Steve Cousins, then CEO of humanoid robot startup Willow Garage, envisioned a near-term future in which his company's video conferencing robots would transcend telepresent, allowing humans to accomplish actual tasks remotely rather than to merely see what's going on. Asking, what is the nature of the human-robot partnership, lets us dig more deeply into questions of costs, benefits, and risks, resource allocation, ethics, particularly agency, and other issues that thus far have been left largely unaddressed. The Case of Surgery By far the most visible robotic treatment technology, the Da Vinci Surgical System, is really not a robot, 
It can neither move nor perform any movement autonomously. Much like the prosthetics described below, however, the Da Vinci robot, the Da Vinci's robotic enhancement of human capability is sufficiently powerful that it deserves our attention here. Furthermore, a robotic technology that is prominently featured in hospitals as marketing efforts, including billboards, merits attention if only because the robotic nomenclature is helping to shape public discussion of the field. The Da Vinci was developed in conjunction with a military initiative to test the feasibility of removing surgeons from medical facilities close to the front line while getting wounded soldiers aid as quickly as possible. Although that design goal was abandoned, it led the way to development of robotic arms with sensors, instruments, and various tools under the control of a surgeon seated at a console. When the Da Vinci came onto the market in the late 1990s, it was claimed that robot-assisted surgery marked a third stage of surgical procedures after open surgery and minimally invasive techniques, techniques such as lap laparoscopies. Though a Though also a form of minimally invasive surgery, unlike some older types, the Da Vinci allows the surgeon to operate an actual image rather than the mirror image mode, so that moving the joystick on the console to the right, say, means the instrument in the operating field goes to the right as well. Thus, the robotic augmentation functions as an extension of the surgeon's eyes and hands. In the market for more than a decade, the Da Vinci provides some useful economic data for other robotics companies still exploring alternative business models. The device itself sells for between 1 and 2.3 million US dollars, depending on geography and configurations. In addition, the system has components that wear out and accessory products such as tips that must be replaced after each surgery, so that the sale of consumables and spare parts generates ongoing revenues. In economic terms, these sales constitute a form of lock-in, given that there are no alternative providers to compete with on price. Finally, a service contract of between $100,000 and $170,000 per machine per year also applies. To give a sense of scale, 449,000 Da Vinci procedures were performed in 2014, compared with 367,000 in 2012. The installed base of Da Vinci surgical systems was reported to be 3,266 as of December 31st, 2014. There are considerable economic incentives for intuitive surgical to have its devices used as much as possible. This is despite the lack of documentation that better outcomes accompany the higher cost of robot-assisted surgery. Thus, prostate surgery is a high-volume Da Vinci procedure, but... According to the Journal of Clinical Oncology in 2012, incontinence and sexual impotence are high after both robot-assisted and con conventional laparoscopic surgeries. And the Journal of the American Medical Association stated in 2013 that, quote, to date, robotically-assisted hysterectomy has not been shown to be more effective than laparoscopy, end quote. Partly because of the high public profile of the Da Vinci surgical system, however, hospitals charge up to twice as much for Da Vinci as for conventional surgery, and insurance companies, to date, have paid more for the process, again with no documented improvement in outcomes. Prostheses Progress in the field of active prosthetics relies on developing all three components that define a robot, sensing, logic, and action. Progress for each of these components has advanced to the point where mind-controlled robot prostheses have been demonstrated. 
In particular, sensors that detect nerve impulses in the amputee's patient's stumps can control prosthetic arms, hands, and legs. Research and development in this field are underway in many countries, including Israel, Sweden, the United Kingdom, and the United States. The wars in the Middle East in the first decades of the 21st century were marked by impressive advances in the care of wounded soldiers. Compared to soldiers injured in Vietnam, where only 76% survived, soldiers injured in Iraq had a 90% chance of survival, even though there were fewer corpsmen and doctors per patient. That high survival rate, however, came at the price of thousands of amputees, victims of improvised explosive devices, mines, and other tools of asymmetric warfare. Given that these young amputees would otherwise face the mental and physical hardships of crutches or confinement to a wheelchair for perhaps 60 or more years, developing effective prostheses that utilize robotic technologies, including brain signal interfaces, is a high priority of current research. In addition to robotic appendages, exoskeletons like Rewalk for patients with intact limbs but limited functions, like paraplegics, can help them walk. In 2012, a paralyzed woman walked the entire London Marathon course in 16 days using a rewalk. The system, which currently costs approximately $85,000, is approved for use in medical facilities under the supervision of a physical therapist or similarly skilled individual. In the future, patients may be able to use the devices at home. For less seriously impaired individuals who have tweaked muscle function, Honda has developed Stride Assist and Bodyweight Support Assist for help in walking, but it's not clear when the devices will become commercially available. Assistance with Daily Life Robots that assist people with the tasks of daily living help promote independence, particularly for elders without family nearby. Although the capabilities of assistive robots are important, so are the attitudes of those receiving assistance. A recent study at Georgia Tech suggests that physically impaired people in the United States welcome robotic assistance with tasks like cleaning, but still prefer humans to help move, feed, and bathe them. Caregivers, for their part, clearly preferred working with robotic assistance to being replaced altogether. One robot designed for home assistance is the Urena from Japan Logic Machine. Announced in 2010, the robot can lift light adults out of bed, carry them, as to a tub, or serve as a motorized wheelchair. As with other medical robots, however, when the urina will become commercially available is unclear. Given the hazards of lifting patients, such assistance would seem to have a potentially wide appeal among caregivers. The Bestic Feeding Assistance Robot is produced by a Swedish firm whose founder was limited in his arm function after contracting polio as a teenager. Because eating is so important to social interaction, being able to be self-sufficient at a meal contributes to well-being at several levels. The Bestic sits on the tabletop and has a clean white design. It can be controlled by foot pedals, buttons, joystick, and potentially voice. The My Spoon from Japan performs similar functions. Personal feeding robots are highly culture-specific, given the wide differences in table utensils, food textures, and eating customs around the world. One factor in the choice of technological assistance lies in the embedded psychological signals that accompany a given technology. Sitting in a wheelchair, no matter how robotic, means not being able to look standing adults in the eye. Robotic walking devices, such as exoskeletons, change patients' attitudes, 
in both senses of the word, toward their surroundings. Many older people need a bit of help getting out of a chair, and the French RoboSoft's RoboLab 10 has been shown to perform this task effectively. Along with several other robotic devices, the RoboLab 10 is intended for in use in institutions, such as rehabilitation hospitals, but the market is developing slowly. It is not difficult to envision such devices in a residential setting as software improves, safety measures are tested in wider trials, product liability is clarified, and other barriers to wider adoption overcome. Given the rate of increase in the aged population in so many industrialized countries, and given developments that can cross-pollinate multiple areas of robotics like better motors, shared software libraries, new materials, mind-computer interfaces, the pace of innovation in robots that improve self-sufficiency should be rapid. Monitoring. Robots used in the care of the elderly often perform multiple functions. Although the Gecko Systems CareBot does not deliver care, it can observe individuals and provide feedback about their behavior or remind them to eat, take medicine, or let in the cat. From a Swedish university comes Giraffe, the elder assist robot that can monitor blood pressure, note a person's movements, and learn the person's regular sleep patterns, and send an alarm if the person should fall or become immobilized. Companionship. A quick look at age pyramids for industrialized countries indicates a fast-approaching predicament, how to care for a population of elders who, because of improved diet and health care, live longer than ever when there are proportionally fewer working-age people to support a growing, non-wage-earning population. Japan presents a pressing case. The proportion of persons over the age of 65 grew from 5% of the population in 1950 to 23% in 2010, and could reach 40% of the population in 2050. On the one hand, economic productivity among the working-age population in Japan and many other industrialized countries must improve in order to fund the growing number of retirees. Savings alone will be insufficient. On the other hand, to supply nurses, aides, and other caregivers in current proportions would create labor shortages and economic imbalance. Enter both the CareBot to help relieve the demand for caregivers and more industrial and service robots to reset the economies of countries and rapidly aging populations. The Paro robot is a stuffed animal modeled on a baby harp seal. It was developed by the National Institute of Advanced Science and Technology, or AIST, a Japanese public research organization at an estimated cost of 15 million U.S. dollars, according to the Wall Street Journal. After being launched in 2003, Paro robots are in their eighth generation and cost approximately $6,000 a piece. The Paro was built on the premise that the benefits of animal therapy could be delivered without the complications of maintaining large numbers of animals in an institutional setting. The Paro is equipped with five types of sensors, tactile, light, sound, temperature, and posture. A robot in the strictest sense of the term, the Paro can distinguish light from dark and thus also sleep cycles, both its own and a human's. When the human strokes or speaks to it, the Paro can detect intention and respond accordingly with gestures and sounds. The robot's body and facial expressions are evocative and some elders, particularly those with certain forms of dementia, are reported to be calmed by the device. For something designed to be so cute and cuddly, the Paro has proven to be controversial. Some critics point to the inauthentic nature of having people love an inanimate object. 
Others expressed concern that if the elder embraces the paro, caregivers, and especially the elder's children, will no longer feel the need to provide meaningful contact, telling themselves instead, as one article put the topic on, quote, don't worry about granny, she's got the robot to talk to, end quote. That's freaky. Centaurs. Okay. In some case of ro- cases of human-robot partnership, the human and the robot augment each other, but a division of labor between the partners that is close to 50-50, though promising in its possibilities, turned, turns out to be both complex and hard to achieve. The vision of such partnership is well-formed in the academic literature. University of Southern California roboticist George Bakey wrote in 2005, quote, We expect a human-robot symbiosis in which it will, will be natural to see cooperation between robots and humans on both simple and complex tasks, end quote. More recently, Eric Brynjolfsson and Andrew McAfee of MIT predicted predicted that the second machine age will be characterized by countless instances of machine intelligence and billions of interconnected brains working together to better understand and improve our world. To understand this class of partnership, it helps to ask, who performs better, a computer or a human? The short answer is obvious. It depends on the task. Computers are now unquestionably better at chess than even a grandmaster-level human player, and the highly visible triumph of IBM's Watson over the best Jeopardy players shows how artificial intelligence can be successfully applied to, to a linguistically rich trivia contest. What might come next? In early 2015, four of the top ten poker players in the world played a marathon against a Carnegie Mellon computer. Considering the complexities of no-limit Texas Hold'em poker, the researchers were hardly surprised that the outcome was no Jeopardy-like route, but the statistical tie elated them. Each player played 20,000 hands. A total of 170 million U.S. dollars in chips was bet over the two-week competition. In the end, the humans came out less than $1 million ahead, even though the computer did things like betting $19,000 to win a $700 pot. The long answer to the who's better question is emerging, a team of both. The term centaurs usually denotes a human-robot team in which both team members do what they do best. We are seeing the teams we are seeing that teams of humans and robots outperform either humans or robots. Here are four areas in which progress is being made more rapidly than might be widely known. Area 1 Audi has teamed up with Stanford's Autonomous Vehicle Lab to develop a race car that can beat a club-level human driver on time. Given that there have yet to be head-to-head races, neither the adrenaline nor the racing tactics of, a com- of competing with purely human drivers have come into play. The Audi simply follows a pre-programmed line and parameters around the course. It hasn't actually raced anyone in one yet. The Centaur model is well-developed here. Stability control anti-lock brakes, and sophisticated all-wheel drive control systems all digitally amplify the skill of a human driver. Outside vintage models, it's difficult to find cars that are not Centaur-like. 2. The internet is awash with images, some of them incredibly beautiful. Researchers at Yahoo Labs and the University of Barcelona have taught an algorithm to trawl through image databases and find beautiful but underappreciated images by using the results of training sessions with human votes. 
As The Economist noted, the field of machine learning is itself undergoing rapid improvement, in part through the process of deep learning, as developed by the giant web businesses with both massive data and effectively unlimited computing resources. Google and Facebook are familiar names on their list. The Chinese web services company Baidu is a newer entrant into the field of AI human-robot teamwork, having made some high-profile hires. 3. Chess has never been the same since Deep Blue defeated Garry Kasparov, in part because of a software bug that led Kasparov to infer that the machine was substantially smarter than he, rather than that the computer had somehow made a dumb move. Since about 2013, however, Centaur teams of average players in good software have been able to defeat both Grandmaster humans and computers. This type of match is where the Centaur tem terminology first took hold. 4. Exoskeletons are common in Hollywood sci-fi, but robots that encase a human body and amplify its capabilities are coming into use in several areas. For example, rehabilitation for stroke patients, amputees, and paralytics. Physical augmentation for soldiers so they can march or run longer with less fatigue, and of able-bodied humans to increase their lifting capacity, for example. Robotically assisted surgery. The da Vinci surgical system is a specialized exoskeleton of a sort, extending a doctor's finger manipula manipulations into more precise movements in the surgical field. One big challenge faced by designers of wearable exoskeletons is to make the power source light enough to work at a human scale. In warehouses, a forklift truck typically weighs 1.6 to 2 times the intended weight to be carried. For, for a 150-pound human intending to carry 200 additional pounds, that ratio would put the human's exoskeleton in the 650-pound range, unloaded, so that the fully loaded package would weigh about 1,000 pounds a half ton, or roughly 450 kilograms. Lowering the battery weight is the quickest way to shrink the total of the total assembly. A great deal of battery power would be expended in simply carrying the battery and a frame sufficiently robust to support the battery. It will bear watching to see how roboticists and computer scientists design the cyber side of the Centaur, optimizing around human strengths that might be expressed in unpredictable ways. Similarly, training a human to leave part of the task to the machine and not to overthink the centaur relationship might be tricky in certain situations. In others, traction control on current cars, for example, humans are already augmented and don't even realize it. When they are explicitly asked in experimental settings, however, humans hesitate to trust a machine's judgment. At the same time, centaurs will have to deal with both the infinite supply of human stupidity and the limits of algorithmic cleverness. What will self-driving cars do when they encounter a drunk driver headed the wrong way on a divided highway? What will Wall Street do when programmatic trading bots react in unstable, unpredictable ways to the gambit of a clever day trader? The 2010 flash crash appears to have been initiated by one person in England who apparently spoofed enough orders, manually rather than algorithmically, to trigger erratic behavior by black box systems that disturbed the entire market. The gambit seems to have worked, by the way. That day trader made $40 million over four years. The point here is that the unexpected interactions between stupid or clever humans and fallible compu computized entities will be a most complicated territory for decades to come. Complications 
Tracing its roots to ancient efforts to create human capability from inanimate materials, 21st century robotics must be understood in the context of everything from Frankenstein's creature to machine tools. Given this rich and complex legacy, it remains impossible to arrive at a definitive understanding of how humans and robots can and could work together. Pioneering research in a variety of disciplines suggests some promising directions, however. Unlike other categories of tools, computers that move among people raise significantly different issues than purely mechanical devices do. Two phenomena are of interest here. Uncanniness. The uncanny valley refers to computer animations and robots that are extremely lifelike, but jarring to humans. A classic example of the first, in stark contrast to a low-resolution hand-drawn Disney animation, not very lifelike yet timelessly compelling, is the digital animation of the Tom Hanks conductor character in The Polar Express. Regardless of the number of pixels and body motion capture devices used to digitize Hanks' voice performance, certain eye muscle and other facial motions and shadings of the animation were disconcerting to viewers. Gains in technical capability did not translate into greater appeal of the character, even though they had generally done so in previous computer animations. The same goes for robots. Skin polymers or facial movements that are too lifelike can be off-putting to humans for reasons that, though evident, are not fully understood. In light of this, Jibbo, a family robot introduced in 2014, is far less human-like than its lab experiment predecessor, Kismet. The anthropomorphic effect. Before even computing left the box in mobile robots, humans were interacting with inanimate objects in surprising ways. The classic work in this regard was done by Byron Reeves and Clifford Nass, who meticulously measured human responses to PCs. Reeves and Nass found that people, across rich and poor, young and old, male and female, routinely assigned human attributes like intelligence, learning, memory, and personality to robots even as early as the 1980s, and nobody felt compelled to challenge the characterations, applied as they were to a collection of wire, silicon, mechanical joints, and computer code. The MIT psychologist Sherry Turkle works closely with artificial intelligence, robotics, and other researchers exploring the fuzzy boundaries between humans and machines. She has been eloquently crit critical of how mobile computing, social networking, and other digital technologies can isolate people and perhaps reshape the human emotional landscape in damaging ways. In short, she is far from a technological drumbeater. Nevertheless, when she was in a lab with the Kismet's fellow robot Cog in the 1990s, her own behavior changed. Quote, Cog noticed me after I entered the room. Its head turned to follow me. And I was embarrassed to note that this made me happy. I found myself competing with another visitor for its, tent for its attention. At one point, I felt sure that Cog's eyes had caught my own. My visit left me shaken, not by anything Cog was able to accomplish, but by my own reaction to him. Despite myself and despite my continuing skepticism about this research, I had behaved as though in the presence of another being. End quote. Turkle is not alone in attributing human attributes to inanimate objects. In Af Iraq and Afghanistan, iRobots' battlefield robots saved human lives by helping keep soldiers out of harm's way in the search and neutralization of improvised explosive devices. 
When the robots were damaged by explosion, the units sometimes had to be shipped back to the iRobot facility outside Boston. According to a 2006 news story titled EOD Personnel Have Made Routine Use of the Units and Crafted Nicknames and Personalities for Them. A unit, nicknamed Scooby-Doo, earned a check mark on its camera head for each explosive device it succeeded in disarming, end quote. When Scooby-Doo was destroyed, the article noted its operator returned it to the repair shop, cradling it in his arms as if it were a wounded child and asking if it could be fixed. The Wall Street Journal reported the same behavior in 2012. Noting that troops sometimes become emotionally attached to battlefield robots, one officer who holds a PhD in robotics noted that, quote, the soldier and marine, the soldiers and marines sometimes name their robots and even give them battlefield promotions for successfully spotting mines or explosive devices. When robots are damaged, some troops insist that they get the same robot back, not a replacement unit, end quote. I have been told much the same story by an iRobot spokesman, and P.W. Singer reports it in Wired for War. A related example comes from the world of entertainment. In the 1980s, the television show Knight Rider featured both the young actor David Hasselhoff and a talking Trans Am named Kit. When the car was later featured at the Universal Studios theme park, lines of people waited to sit in the car and have it speak to them much in the same manner of the original Mechanical Turk via a human connected to a robot microphone. Social Roles Pioneering research in 2011 at the Carnegie Mellon Robotics Institute placed a snack delivery robot in an office context, then recorded human reactions to the snack bot's activities and presence. Participants ordered snacks through a web interface. The wheeled robot, standing about five feet tall, had a display on its head that expressed emotions and a voice synthesizer that played pre-programmed scripts for greeting, small talk, the snack transaction, and social leave-taking. Although the human participants were expected to have minimal interaction with the delivery cart that left snacks, the evolution of their reactions was fascinating. Anthropomorphism was common. People felt sorry for the bot when it broke or talked to a closed door. The robot's non-judgmental persona was appealing to some, and he was accepted as a member of the workplace within two weeks. Norms for reactions with Snackbot emerged. Standard human politeness, including not interrupting the robot's speech, replaced machine-like interactions. In one transcript, a coworker told a colleague, now you've gone and made Snackbot feel bad. In other settings, participants felt jealous if the bot complimented a coworker's work ethic or healthy snack choice. Snackbot was thought to have crushes on several workers on the basis of its speech or travel patterns. The researchers saw ripple effects far beyond the human's reactions to the bot. The people expressed politeness, protection of the robot, mimicry, social comparison, and even jealousy. The presence of Snackbot changed how people interacted one another in largely unanticipated ways. If a low-functioning snack delivery machine can have such an effect on humans, how much greater an effect will far more capable robots have on us in the future? And how well will managers, researchers, and others be able to monitor and modulate that effect? Whether in a laboratory or on a battlefield, at a theme park or in a living room, people involuntarily and consistently react to electronic and mechanical objects in psychologically important ways. But what are they reacting to? There is a core group of both science fiction authors and roboticists who insist that robots can attain consciousness. Rodney Brooks, formerly at MIT, is by no means alone when he writes, 
quote, my own beliefs say that we are machines. And from that, I conclude that there is no reason in principle that it is not possible to build a machine from silicon and steel that has both genuine emotions and consciousness, end quote. Much like Ray Kurzweil, Brooks reasons that the continued intermingling of artificial and natural subsystems will lead to creation of a hybrid life form and that the distinction between us and robots is going to disappear. Although that day may never come, the question remains, why do humans react with such intense emotion to robotic forms? Thank you for watching. Please like, subscribe, and visit my channel for more exciting content.